Father, you are the great artist, the creator of the universe, and you're amazing the way you've brought in color and design and dimensions. and It's just, we are overwhelmed and we marvel at your beauty and we worship you, our God. We long to learn about how, what it means to truly trust in you, what, what this concept of faith, what does it mean? And so we ask that you would teach us uh, from your word that we would learn today from Noah. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, but we're really spending some time on chapter 11 because chapter 11 is some great examples of faith. And we really want to learn everything we can from the book of Hebrews chapter 11 on what it means to be a person of faith. And today, verse 7 is talking about Noah and what we can learn about his faith. So I thought it might not be a bad idea to watch this video clip. On the ark now! I think we should get on the ark. I agree. I think we should get on the ark also. I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm going home. I know you want to watch the rest of the movie, but, you know, okay. Actually, it was a pretty decent movie. I I enjoyed it, uh, but there was a couple serious problems in the movie, okay, that I want to mention, all right? Uh, Two, in fact, major problems with this particular movie, though, and I like, it's, it's okay to watch a movie, enjoy its aesthetic qualities, but you should critique it as well for the worldview that it's presenting. And one of the things that when they have God speak, one of the things that he says is, speaking about Noah and the ark, he says, the flood wasn't about judgment. Yes, it was. That's all it was about. And when I hear stuff like that from the world, I'm just dumbfounded. And they missed the whole point. And then the second thing, no one gets hurt in this movie. In fact, the people, after they see the flood, after the water start coming, they're still allowed on the boat, and that did not happen, okay? So, in the first one, anyway. 
It's okay if it happened in the second one, but you, you get my point, okay? Because we tend to want to sanitize the Bible, fix it, make it fit our world. I was in Denver last, the last week uh, before this last Sunday. Let's see. I went to a conference. Okay, that's why I wasn't preaching Sunday, last Sunday. And uh, was in downtown Denver and did a lot of walking around and stuff. I talked to this one guy. He was clearly on drugs. And he said, this is what he said. He said, Jesus helps me steal things. I told him, I said, no, he doesn't. He says, yes, he does. I said, that's not the true Jesus, the true Jesus. And the Bible even says there's another Jesus, but the true Jesus doesn't help. He says, yes, he does. I said, you know, and I wasn't going to get in an argument with a guy on drugs, but, you know, you, you see the point there, okay, because we don't get to make up our own religion. If you don't have the right one, you are in serious trouble according to the Bible. So how do we know we have the right one? And God has revealed himself and his plan in the Bible. He's given us good reasons to believe his word as well, by the way. Uh, that's why I wrote my book, The Uniqueness of the Bible, to show the, the supernatural origins of this book. So he's shown us, he's given us good reason to believe, but we must believe. We have to have faith, and I would say for today, faith like Noah. Look at verse 7, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what can we learn about faith from Noah? And I want to look at the elements of Noah's faith that we see in this particular verse. By the way, Noah, as well as we're going to see Abraham and some of these other people, we've already seen Enoch, uh, these are great men of faith, uh, what some might even call giants of the faith, but good examples of faith. I think of some more uh, modern examples. George Mueller, for instance, in the 19th century, there was a great man of faith. He uh, took care of two large orphanages in England back in the industrial age time, okay, uh, and, and took care of them completely by faith. He never asked anybody for money, but things always came in because he trusted in God and the kids were taken care of. So there's a great example of faith. But these are examples of faith because we can all have that kind of faith. Now, there is such a thing as the gift of faith, okay? So that there are some people who are gifted with the gift of faith, and so they might have go even further. Maybe George Mueller was one of those kind of guys. But here what we're seeing, especially in chapter 11, these aren't, wow, those are great, and I could never be that. That's not the point at all. This, the point of this is here's how we as Christians in normal Christianity can trust in God. They are examples because we can all have this kind of faith. We're supposed to have this kind 
of faith. And the first element of Noah's faith that we see in our passage is that Noah believed God's warning. Look at the verse again. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. And so we see he was warned by God, floods coming, built an ark, not overnight. It says over a period of 120 years, he was told, build an ark, Flood's coming, judgment's coming. And you're probably familiar with the flood, and so we're not going to read all the chapters in the Old Testament about the flood, but remember it? Remember the flood? Like, no, I wasn't that old, right? But you've read about it, right? This was an absolute devastation. He built the ark. I'm sure people were making fun of him. He's, you know, out in the middle of nowhere with a boat. And they're like, oh, look at Noah in the boat. You know, and that kind of thing. And But he believed God, that God warned them because of the sin of the people. Judgment was coming. He took God seriously, and he continued to build the boat. Look at Second Peter chapter three, verses three through seven. Here we see uh, that there are going to be people who will question whether God would ever judge. Look at Second Peter three, verses three through seven. It says, "Above all, be aware of this: scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing." And following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What he's saying is in the last days, people are going to question God's judgment. He's not going to do that. Things have always been the same. They deliberately forget he already judged the world through the flood. And he is going to judge the world again through fire. And we need to take heed to this warning because I believe we are living in the end times. I believe we're getting close. I don't know when. I'm not going to predict any dates. But I do believe that probably in our lifetime we're going to see this. And God destroyed all humanity in the flood except for those eight people. And he's coming back soon to judge the world. But people want to sanitize the Bible. So they cut out those kinds of things. Uh, They cut out parts of the Bible. I have a Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. This is Thomas Jefferson actually uh, he was what's called a deist. He did not believe in miracles, and he didn't like a lot of the stuff in the Bible, so he just cut it out. <laughs> and he 
put the stuff that he liked, and this is called the Jefferson Bible. You can actually get a copy of it. I have it. It's a lot smaller. See? (laughs) Because he thought, if I don't like it, I can just take it out. But he's going, well, he already found out that that's wrong. Okay? And so God's people... We don't do that. Christians believe God's word. Look at John chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. Here are the words of Jesus, and this is what he says about this issue of real faith. And the book of John is all about faith. It actually talks a lot about faith. But there were some who supposedly believed, and now he's pointing out what true belief is. Look what he says in John 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Put quotations around that. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice here he's saying the true believer continues in his word. He believes his word very much like Noah believed God's word, his word of warning. He built the boat when it didn't look like it was going to rain. But he believed, he trusted, and he ended up being right. God's word, Christians believe God's word, but not only that, but God's word is precious to real Christians. Look at Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about the Bible. Every single verse speaks using a different word for God's word, uh, but he speaks about God's word. And here we see in verses 9 through 16, a very important passage. He starts out, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now there is a question that all of us should be asking, but he's obviously writing especially for the young people. Okay, but here, here is the truth. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. NIV says by living uh, in accordance to your word or something like that. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. See, he meditated on, memorized, dug into God's words so that he may not sin against the Lord. Lord, may you be blessed. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget Your word. And we can see that in Noah. We see that in the lives of true believers. We take this seriously. Now, Noah believed God's warning. Noah believed God's word. The second element of faith uh, that we can see in Noah is that Noah was motivated. I'm still learning this new clicker. Noah was motivated by godly fear. Back at our verse 11, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, 
built an ark to deliver his family. And so here we see he was motivated by godly fear. Now, the question is, what is the fear of God? Okay, it's a phrase we see throughout the scriptures. It's a phrase not talked about much in today's circles. Uh, But Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, the beginning. That means the fear of the Lord is at the very bottom basic aspect of true wisdom. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have any wisdom. That's what it's saying, right? Any biblical wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it it would uh, really be important for us to see what does that mean? What did it mean for Noah? What does it mean as we see it throughout scriptures? What does it mean to Jesus? Look at Luke. Oh, here, let me uh, go to the next slide. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. We see what Jesus says about this concept of the fear of the Lord. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. He starts out by letting us know, don't fear anything or any." one at all. Don't fear anything or anyone. And that's a very important point. So often we live in fear. Don't fear. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Fear the Lord and nothing else. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus taught, okay? So, if Jesus taught it, we better, as followers of Jesus, figure out what does this mean. What is the fear of God? And the first point I would say about what the fear of God is, with a study of all of the scriptures about fear, the fear of the Lord, first of all, it is a reverential awe, okay? It is not something that causes you to shy away from God. It's something that causes you to draw near to God, but on your knees, Okay, so it is a reverential awe of God. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it's kind of an interesting passage because it reveals this is after God stops the persecution that was going on by getting Paul saved. Okay, remember Paul? God, persecution of the church. God gets him saved, and then that brings relief. Then, now look at the result here. It says in verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So it's not just when you're doing bad. It's when you're really living for the Lord, very much like Noah as well we still experience this fear of the Lord, which is this reverential awe of God. 
just in awe of his greatness and so forth, okay? And therefore, very similar to this, it is a recognition of God's transcendence, okay? God is not like us. He is other than us. He is great. We are not. He is God. We are not. He's the creator. We're the created. It brings out that difference, okay, between us and God. And we recognize you are God. So his transcendence, you are the one to whom we must give an account. And we don't create God in our image, And we don't put him in a box either. Liberalism has put him in a box. They've made a tame God. And God doesn't stay in boxes very well. He's not a tame God. Uh, Look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. There's a book you probably don't read very often. Okay, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if you're looking for it in the... the, uh, Old Testament, last part of the Old Testament. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flowers of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. We better read the next verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so we see that he is awesome. He is glorious, and we better not you know, move away from him. Uh, this is what's going to happen, but he does say he's good. Those who take refuge in him, see, the fear of the Lord does not cause us to shy away. It causes us to draw near and say, I need you. You are good. You've provided forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. I'm taking refuge in you. I'm getting on the boat Okay, and so we see this recognition of God's transcendence. And then thirdly, it is a respect for God's discipline. We're going to see more about this when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. But I do want to look at one verse, Acts 5, verse 11. Here we see another example of this. Once again, uh, this is right after Ananias and Sapphira. Remember those two? (laughs) Ananias and Sapphira, they get killed by God for lying. (laughs) And then it says, here's the response of the church, verse 11. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. And so we see a respect for God's discipline 
Now, this is only one part of our relationship with God, the fear of God. He is holy, so the proper response to his holiness is fear. And he is also loving, and so the proper response is to receive his love and pour out our love to him, okay? So our relationship with God is unique. It includes both of these aspects. And so we take refuge in him. We experience his love, pour out our love to him, seek to live for him, but we also seek to live in this reverential awe of God as well. And Noah understood that. It says Noah was motivated by godly fear. And then the third thing, so we have Noah believed God's warning. Noah was motivated by godly fear. And Noah condemned the world. Look at what it says back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, And motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's, it's important for us to understand this, okay? First of all, I would say that an obedient lifestyle convicts those in the dark, okay? Um leading either to humble conviction and salvation or they get mad. You just simply live for Jesus Christ. People see that holy lifestyle. Some will be drawn to the Lord. Others will just get mad at you. You see that in the book of Acts. You see that with Paul. Okay, with Paul, he was either getting persecuted or leading people to Jesus. There was no middle ground. Okay, and that's true. When we seek to live for the Lord, we're going to see that this brings a conviction and therefore a, a, uh, a mixed response by people. Now, let me read from Albert Moeller's commentary. He, ex- he explains this a little bit. He says, by faith, he condemned the world. How did Noah condemn the world? It's not that Noah sat in an official capacity as judge over the antediluvian people. Rather, whenever an individual lives in obedience to God against the immorality of the world, that individual condemns the rest of the world in its unrighteousness. Think of it this way. What, happen, what happens when you put a light in a dark room? The light stands out from the darkness And what had previously been unseen is revealed for what it truly is. Often we do not even recognize how dark our environment has become until someone shines a light in it. By the same token, the obedience of a righteous man both reveals and condemns the disobedience of the world. We did an outreach just last week, okay? And some people went out to simply give Coburn cards to people who could use a little extra for their groceries. That's what we wanted to do, just to bless people so they could have a nice Thanksgiving. And, and so we gave away a bunch of Coburn cards, uh, and, uh, and most of the response, we went to a um, mobile home park, and most of the response was just wonderful. They were grateful. They, we even got uh, emails to the to the church website saying, thank you so much. That was just such a blessing and so forth. But one person actually told him, I think it was, I can't remember who it was. Was it Tim or somebody? They said, stop shoving your religion down our throat. 
just giving away Coburn cards for groceries. That's shoving religion down their throats. No, it was trying to shove food down their throats is what it was. Okay, but, but you get the point, okay? The light shines, the conviction comes, the anger comes out with some, okay? Uh, Barclay uh, also talks about, you know, helps us understand this. He says, Noah's faith was a judgment on others. That is why, at least in one sense, it is dangerous to be a Christian, It is not that the Christian is self-righteous. It is not that he is censorious. It is not that he goes about finding fault with other people. It's not that he says, I told you so. It often happens that simply by being himself, the Christian passes judgment on other people. And so what we see here is Noah, an obedient lifestyle, convicts those in the dark, but also Noah preached Righteousness. We know this from 2 Peter 2.5. It specifically says, Noah preached righteousness. And, and so he was trying to help people see the error of their ways. Now, Noah didn't stand on the corner with a sign that said, turn or burn. Um, I think we did see one guy downtown Denver with that kind of a motif. But, but, but he didn't simply say, Jesus loves you either. Um, He warned them of the coming judgment, which is the loving thing to do if it's coming. In fact, if there's a fire coming and we don't warn people, that's mean. That's very unloving. And if you believe the book, there's a fire coming. And God has warned us ahead of time because he loves every single person on this planet and wants them to come to him. The whole gospel, though, includes both the love of God and the justice of God. A wonderful passage of scripture that I've been uh, looking at lately is Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me uh, just read that quick here. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. I love this. It says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when we take refuge in Him, we're redeemed and we're forgiven. We transfer from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. Okay, that's what God wants us to be about, helping people switch kingdoms before it's too late. The love of God and the justice of God. You see, a half gospel is a false gospel. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, it says, preach the word in season and out of season. So whether it's popular or not, we have to declare. And he goes on to say, because in the end, there's going to be a time where people are going to gather around them, people who will just tell them what they want to hear. They'll tickle their ears and tell them, there's no judgment coming. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. 
And that's not what the book says. We have to understand the bad news before we can truly appreciate the good news. Now he goes on to say, and I believe this is the good news, okay? So go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And we see here, Noah was counted righteous by faith. So by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Even Noah's righteousness came by faith, not works. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Uh, Noah was counted righteous by faith. He was actually the first person in the Bible to be called righteous. Look at Genesis chapter 6, just before the flood, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Now that word favor means grace. Not by works, but grace. He found grace from the Lord. And then he goes on and says, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. We know from our passage here, declared righteous because of his faith. A righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. So it actually changed him, made a difference in his life. Noah walked with God, had a personal relationship with God. This is all the elements that we see throughout the Bible, how people get saved. Here's how it works, okay? When we trust in God, he counts our faith as righteousness, which then changes us from the inside out, gradually making us righteous. Justification is when you are declared righteous, and sanctification is the process of making you righteous, okay? We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But verse 10 says, but God has works that he has made just for us, so of course he wants us to work, but the works don't save us. Our grace through faith in Christ is what saves us, okay? And when we repent and believe, our sins are imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. This is the greatest transaction of all time, okay? Okay. Romans 4, 1 through 4 talks about this. When we look at Abraham, we'll talk about this more. But I do want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, very simple verse that brings this out, this point out. It says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice here. He takes him who is sinless, Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, our sins imputed to him. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. But because he was perfect and fully righteous, his righteousness is imputed to us. That is an incredible deal, okay? Um, let me read from John Piper's uh, book here on counted righteous in Christ. He explains. 
He says, but if Christ being made sin for us implies the imputation of our sin to Christ, then it is not arbitrary or unnatural to construe the parallel, our becoming the righteousness of God in him, as the imputation of God's righteousness to us. We become God's righteousness the way Christ was made our sin. He did not become morally sinful in the imputation. We do not become morally righteous in the imputation. He was counted as having our sin. We are counted as having God's righteousness. This is the reality of imputation. And the righteousness imputed is not our faith, but an external divine righteousness. Philippians 3.9 brings that out as well. And so we see this incredible transaction simply when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, okay? So when we repent and believe, our sins are imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. When we are, whoops, here's another one. When we are saved, we are born again and receive a new heart that wants to follow God and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us leading us to follow God and his ways. Romans, John 3, 3, Ezekiel 36, okay? So the change takes place. Because of this, fruit is inevitable. When you're truly born again, he begins the work of sanctification, making you what he's declared you to be, okay? It's a, it's a great plan of God. Now, our baptism is the ceremony of the salvation. I want you to look at Colossians 2, 12 and 13, okay? Here, he talks about baptism. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. He says, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. In the Bible, they take it for granted that you were baptized when you were saved. Okay, In the Bible, the normal time of a person's salvation was their baptism. And we see this in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, talks about being buried in baptism. You see, you, you're standing in the water. You are buried in baptism. It's a burial. You die to the old way of life. You rise again to newness of life. Acts 2, 37 and 38. Uh, Peter was asked after he preached the gospel. The people said, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the normal way it happened in the Bible. In fact, most people, they were saved at their baptism. Look at chapter Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Here's Paul is actually recounting his own salvation, and he's telling us how he got saved. Look at Acts 22, and he's speaking of Ananias who preached the gospel to him. And this is what Ananias said to him. Acts 22, verse 16. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay, so baptism was the ceremony of salvation. Now, the ceremony doesn't save you. Nothing magical in the water. But it was the normal time of salvation biblically. It's when you seal the deal, so to speak. Okay, 
because you're entering into a covenant. The Bible speaks of salvation as a covenant, the new covenant, okay? And, and the ceremony in the new covenant is baptism. Marriage is a covenant, right? Now, you, when do you get married? Usually at your wedding, right? Usually, right? Now, the wedding doesn't marry you. Your vows before God and the people in the legal sense of the term as well, that's what marries you. But it typically happens at your wedding, okay? Imagine somebody having the wedding when they're one years old, but get married 20 years later. Doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Or imagine someone getting married and having the wedding ceremony 10 years later. Okay, normally you get married, you at your wedding ceremony. Okay, that's the biblical. You get not married, well, technically you become the bride of Christ, okay, <laughs> at your baptism, okay, normally. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved, you didn't get baptized or whatever, but I am saying this is what the Bible teaches. This is how they do it. So, do you have faith like Noah? Have you trusted in Christ, really trusted in him? And have you been baptized? And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? God's inviting you in two weeks. (laughs) So talk to me. Send me an email, whatever. Okay, let's pray. (sighs) Father, you are good. And we do fear you. You are holy. You are awesome in your glory. And we tremble in your presence. But we draw near to you because we love you. And we know that you are the shelter for the storm. And I ask that if there is anyone here who's on the outside looking in, perhaps like those people when Noah was preaching, on the outside looking in, I pray that you draw them in before it's too late and help them to realize that you've already sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that their sins could be forgiven. That if they take refuge in you, they will be completely forgiven, completely protected from your wrath which is coming and not only that but into a glorious life it's amazing it's awesome with a plan with a calling on our lives oh Lord draw them in and help us all too maybe we've been anesthetized maybe we've been desensitized maybe we've been sidetracked help us to get back in focus with your mission while we're here on this planet. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Worship our God. Amen.